Hi, I'm Mark Brody, and this is the Friday Newscap Podcast. Each week, we review the biggest stories with experts, reporters, and commentators to put the news in perspective. Here's this week's episode. What we're doing is is making sure that parents who are exploring these options for the first time understand that there are rights and protections that cover them in a public school system that are not necessarily there in the private school system. I'm determined that all ESA funds will be strictly in compliance with legislation and that every single penny spent will be for a valid educational purpose. Seniors, people experiencing homelessness who have nowhere to turn, disadvantaged communities are the least able to recover from climate disasters. Arizona doesn't need to wait for the federal legislation to come down. That's something that the federal OSHA folks have said they are working on, but that could take many years to promulgate a new rule on the federal level. There's only one kind of car you can buy, and you can only buy it at one dealership. And the dealer says, we don't negotiate. That's basically what's been happening for the last 20 years with Medicare. Placing holds on hundreds of military promotions over a single policy disagreement is unconscionable. I thought Mark Fincham lived in Oro Valley. Uh, Last time I had heard, he was um, talking about moving to Maricopa County to run against Stephen Richard, but maybe he thinks I'm uh, more of a monster and he needs to move to Yavapai County. And with me to talk about a busy week in the world of empowerment scholarship accounts, what office an election conspiracy theorist might run for next, and more are Chuck Coughlin of High Ground. Hey there, Chuck. Hey, good to see you, Mark. And Don Panich Thacker of Agave Strategy. Hey, Don. Good morning. So let's start. There's so much to talk about with uh, empowerment scholarship accounts, basically school vouchers for those uh, not uh, liking the acronym of ESA. So, Chuck, I want to start with you about the head of the ESA program at the Education Department, somebody that school superintendent Tom Horn brought in to oversee this program, kind of abruptly resigned this week. Do you have a sense of what's behind this? Well, I don't have any inside sense on that, but I think we can all observe that the program's overwhelmed. Right. And I'm sure that was a level of frustration on the inside of a department trying to administer it. Um, You know, we heard Horn uh, speak in the lead in there about, you know, everything's going to be spent legally, everything. So, you know, but the infrastructure to do that is not really there. And so I think if you're a professional in that position, you got to feel some anxiety and some pressure and finally, you know, pull the ripcord and get the heck out. Yeah. Well, so the explanation, Don, we got, uh, from from this person was that, you know, they'd basically come in to do a job. They fe- they felt like they had accomplished it and were ready to move on. But as Chuck said, like, there's a lot happening and a lot of students and families applying for it. And that's just a, that's a lot of work to administer. Yeah, frankly, nothing could be further from the truth in terms of having achieved what she set out to do. Um, and her resignation was abrupt. But the problems with that office have been since day one. Um Families who have been in the ESA program had complaints immediately because they felt completely forgotten and kind of betrayed by the expansion, Um, special needs families in particular. There have been multiple problems with privacy um, of personal data. There have been problems with um, transactions being approved, like admission to water parks being paid for by our government dollars and called P.E., Um, There has been nothing but problems with this ESA program since the expansion. Um, And I think that, as Governor Hobbs and Attorney General Mays have said, what we need to do and what they have set out to do is bring some transparency, because I think that once that starts to happen, we will see even more how unequipped ADE, 
um, you know, the the former director and frankly, Superintendent Horn are for what for what this program has ballooned onto into. And that's not even counting the fact that it is three hundred million dollars above budget. Well, so when you talk about some of the transparency issues, Governor Hobbs, a lot of legislative Democrats were talking about trying to implement some of those uh, during this session, which we should point out is still ongoing, uh, (laughs) although the budget is is long done. But they weren't able to get any of that through the Republican-controlled legislature. Is there any reason to think that they would have more success doing that next year? Well, one thing that, um, you know, skeptics or, or folks who actually want accountability and transparency and the Democrats were able to achieve is an ad hoc study committee in the legislature, which will be made up of the governor, Superintendent Horn, two Republicans, two Democrats and two members of the public. Um, and they are tasked with figuring out what oversight and transparency really means and what kind of metrics we need from the education department in order to get to the bottom of how this money is being spent, where is it going, who are these vendors. Um, And so maybe a smaller body like that can actually make some headway. But remember, the the Speaker of the House, Ben Toma, remains the champion of the universal ESA program. So whether that this ad hoc committee will be able to actually move the needle for taxpayers to know where our money is going. I don't know. This legislature has shown that they are antagonistic to the realities of how much things cost and where this money is going. I don't necessarily see that changing next session. Well, Chuck, we saw this week also the governor's office put out a a memo that said the uh, ESA program uh, is costing like close to a billion dollars basically mm-hmm. a year. And, and if those numbers are right, it would put the state in a three close to a $300 million shortfall. Um, do, is that enough to, to move the needle if those numbers can, are borne out and if the economist uh, that Ben Toma has hired to look into who these students are, who the families are, where they're coming from, who are g- getting ESAs, like, is there room for some kind of compromise here? Well, it's a one-seat majority, um, and Don's right. There is a, a hostility within the majority down there to do anything dramatic. What I would see is the development of the data, the data set that we're looking at here. Look what Alan McGuire is going to do with his report, come back, and then it really becomes a 24 election issue. Um, I would think that you'd want to talk about that if you were a Democrat um, running in a swing district or uh, with those types of opportunities, you'd want to exploit that opportunity to talk to voters about your desire to have more data, more information, more accountability, as Don says, to to draw, make sure that our, our taxpayer dollars are going towards um, productive educational investments that are helping students and their families grow. Um, I don't really see a dramatic improvement in this next session. Um, but I, I could see an evolution of that discussion happening. How big of an election topic do you think this might be? Um, I think the de- I, I think the budget issue is a de- is a significant one. They're running about one hundred and fifty five million dollars behind um, below, you know, and I think that, uh, you know, the the economic measures that the feds do and are slowing the economy down. And so you're seeing uh, revenue drop offs. I think that's going to continue to happen. And I think the Hobbs and her team would be wise to begin now to develop a plan to talk about that. Um, you know, they did $2 billion in one-time expenditures in the last budget. You know, if I were them, I'd, I'd be talking to my caucus members. I'd come up with a list of programs that I want to claw back. 
that aren't I'd slow walk some spending stuff. I mm. I'd talk about some things and say, you know, we don't because, you know, what the Republicans are probably going to do is come out with a plan to talk about cutting uh, state shared revenues to towns. Um, they're still going to, I believe, in this upcoming special session uh, that's probably on the horizon. You're going to see uh, an, assault, uh, an elimination of the rental tax mm. beginning in 25. Um, and so you're going to do the typical things they're going to do. So how do you set the stage for what's going to come next? And if you would begin by stating the obvious that we spent way too much money last year, start clawing some of that stuff back and then position the governor to be in favor of protecting public safety and some of these things that like those rental tax dollars actually go towards. Yeah. Um, you could begin to develop a narrative there, a center right, center left narrative that would be make sense for Democrats to be able to hold on to. Yeah, Don, do you think this, I mean, Governor Hobbs has made no secret of her desire to win at least one, if not both, legislative chambers for Democrats in, in the 2024 elections. Is this one way that, that maybe that she she thinks or Democrats think could help them do that? Yeah, I think, I mean, Chuck knows better than anyone that education remains a top issue for Arizona voters. And when you start to see that we're also going to see the revenue hit of Governor Ducey's flat tax kicking in, which is going to make all the accounting even more difficult then voters are going to be asked, and I think it's going to be a pretty stark um, you know, question for us to say, okay, do we want to, our tax dollars going to things like water skiing lessons in Missouri <laughs> through this private school voucher program that's completely unregulated? Or are we willing to not see potholes filled? Because somewhere money's got to get cut. Would we rather see it cut in expenses that are highly questionable to begin with? Or are we saying, hey, we're we're okay with cutting back health care. We're okay with not working on our roads. And so those are very real issues. Those are the issues that people feel when they're literally driving to work every day. And that keeps it present and keeps it on the minds of voters when the time comes. Chuck, we also saw this week uh, sort of a little kerfuffle between uh, Tom Horn and Attorney General Chris Mays about some of the, the legal protections for families and students who go use ESAs to go to private schools. And it kind of seemed like, you know, Mays was basically saying, look, if you if you go to a, a private school, you know, they don't have the, some of the protections that you have in, in public schools don't exist. And Horn didn't really disagree with her, but basically <laughs> said, you know, look, parents, you know, should if parents see that this isn't working for their kid, they can move them somewhere else, which is also true. Yeah. Um, Tom stuck in the spot of defending that position. He believes in it. I, I have no doubt about that. But back to the earlier part of the conversation, the sort of legal fiction going on here is that there's true accounting and a real grasp of what's happening there. And then, as you point out, there's these additional intellectual and policy points about how how money is being treated and how students are being treated disparately across all of these different avenues of spending. Um, and I think Chris has a really good point there to make. Um, and he's holding on to sort of this legal fiction uh, uh, and hoping that the legislature comes along and gives him some, I would think, accountable tools through this policy committee that Don spoke mm. about earlier and maybe begin to come to the front so he can have some – he can wrap himself in some clothing of some real regulatory uh, ideas and, of course, money to back up those real regulatory ideas. Don, does it seem like this might be an attempt by the attorney general to dissuade people from using ESAs? It's definitely a deliberate and long overdue attempt to make sure people realize that 
there, this is no, you know, uh, nirvana or utopia of, you know, there are a million wonderful private schools out there just dying to accept your wonderful child. No, in fact, one thing that the universal voucher has also shepherded in is a lot of charlatans, a lot of folks who are opening up quote unquote private schools or are quote unquote tutors and happy to take your $7,000, $10,000, $40,000, which is what ESA monies account to in many cases, and they are not certified, they are not qualified, and they have absolutely no intention of actually educating your child. So these are warnings to ESA parents that are long overdue that I have been hearing about in the education space for many, many years of parents who think that they're taking their ESA to a legitimate school only to find the door closed and the shutters down two weeks later. And then what happens? The district public schools are there to welcome their child. Yeah. And so these warnings are needed. The irony of ironies here, as we were talking about before the show began, is you actually have Republicans advocating for more money for public education now. <laughs> and so it creates this dichotomous place where you could actually use some of these tools, as we did like in the budget uh, the uh, two years ago with um, Senator Boyer. Uh, we actually got $100 million out of that budget to go to Title I schools. So we increased the weight, right. um, which had never been done, to, to fund those public schools that are in need, that are serving these kids, these communities at risk. And so, you know, there's some creative, you know, it, it's all not, you know, you can see the politics of all these things, right? But then there's the reality of what happens on the street. And so you got to think about how to use these things in a political sense to get what you want. Right. I'm not sure I've ever heard the word dichotomous used on the radio. Though. Nice, <laughs> nice job, Chuck. Thank you. So, guys, the legislature is scheduled to come into session on Monday. Um, they've been away for quite a while um, again. And um, <laughs> the, the, the big thing left really to do, seemingly, is uh, Prop 400, the Maricopa County uh, sales tax. Chuck, I know you've been working with the county, you know, on this issue for a while now. Does it there's some rumblings that maybe there is a deal afoot between the governor's office and Republican leadership? Does it seem as though that's a reality? I think it may be. Uh, I think it may be. Uh, you know, the, the speaker wanted to have the, the line that goes by the Capitol moved because he thought it was like line. an assault yeah. on the Capitol. So City of Phoenix is discussing that as an option. Um, I think they're looking more now at the Livingston proposal from earlier that brings it more in line with the, the funding mechanisms that MAG originally adopted um, with some changes um, but the big the big trade there, I think, that's happening is the the Republicans in the legislature have made numerous attempts to lim- eliminate the rental tax on rental homes, which yeah. which I think like 71 cities in the state uh, charge. And as we know, most municipal budgets are public safety, half public safety budgets, police and fire. So they want to cut that, which is a significant um, assault on that local revenue. And I think they may have a deal to do that, delaying that until like 25. Um, And then we'll see what Governor Hobbs does in the upcoming session to say, what's my beginning line in terms of the next budget Mm. and maybe replacing that revenue. So uh, there's a lot of moving pieces here. Yeah. But I I think they'll probably do something maybe the first or second week of August uh, and come back and into a, a special session that she will call 
and maybe the, those two things would get accomplished. Don, it would seem as though that would be fairly significant for all involved. I mean, the legislature passed a Prop 400 extension that the governor vetoed because it was not what MAG wanted, the Maricopa Association, Maricopa Association of Governments. Seems like it would be pretty significant if they were able to actually come up with something that everybody could at least live with. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I will be honest, I was one of the people real skeptical when they said they were extending this session. I thought, like, this is not going to achieve anything with just adding additional weeks. But it turns out that, yeah, that real progress has been made. And and I agree with Chuck that I think that we're going to see some big news coming out really soon that, you know, has everybody a little unhappy which means it's probably a a good deal. But, Chuck, it kind of raises the question, like, why did they have to keep the session open to do this? Yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, So the Friends of Transit is coming out with a a poll, I think, today, which shows like 68 percent of Maricopa County voters agree that we should extend Prop 400. That's it. And clearly included in that is a plurality of Republicans or a majority of Republicans, rather, not just Mm -hmm. a plurality. And it would speak to how 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 uh, unattached the Republican majority is to a majority of Republican voters when they have been insisting they're not going to fund transit or in particular any light rail. And, you know, I've I've said to a number of members down there, so you don't want to have the region pay for your freeways anymore because then if you're not paying for theirs, then they're not going to pay for yours. And Phoenix being the biggest city and Tempe and Mesa now, they're not getting new freeways out of this. So, you're essentially going to lose money on the 303, the I-10 reliever, everything in the West Valley because you people – and that's the end of Prop 400 because as a Phoenix voter, I'd say, yeah, I'm cool with that because I'm not going to be using those freeways that much anymore. We can take care of our own thing. It would be bad for the region though. Um, and But it's just this head-in-the-sand approach that they've taken. And so they've come around and I think largely in part to A, moving that, that line mm-hmm. and B – the idea of um, getting an opportunity to trade for the rental tax. The rental tax. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good so old, good old uh, hogs. Little hog, horse trading. Little there. horse trading going on. So, Don, one of the people who's been very involved in the Prop 400 uh, looking at this issue is Senator Ken Bennett, who, of course, was Senate president back when uh, the last time this was expanded or extended. And we learned this week that he might be getting a new uh, primary challenger, uh, former state uh, lawmaker Mark Fincham, uh, who represented Oro Valley. We heard from Senator Bennett at the top of the show, uh, ran for secretary of state uh, last year and did not do terribly well. So I'm curious, like, you know, we've heard maybe he's going to run for Maricopa County Recorder, maybe run for Senate. seems like he's not quite sure what he wants to do. I think all that Mark Fincham wants is to get elected somewhere. And that was his calculus, it seems, in uh, choosing now Yavapai County, where he does not have any kind of roots or anything else, um, because it turns out in a local data guy, Sam Almi, figured this out. That's where he had the highest vote share in his unsuccessful bid mm. for secretary of state. So he thinks he might have a chance there. So you know, this is just the most blatant example of, you know, a career politician. He doesn't care what he's doing, what job it is. He just wants to be elected. Um, and so that's unfortunately what maybe Ken Bennett gets for being a little too reasonable and not being <laughs> so far right that he is beloved by the election conspiracy theorists and the deep red state. Um, he's getting this challenger in Mark Fincham. 
Yeah, yeah. it's it's amusing, right? It's like uh, Ken is, you know, Yavapai County District 1 is was one of the most conservative districts in the state along with Mojave County. So that's what Fincham's looking at. And he's looking at Bennett as a potentially vulnerable guy that he could go after in the primary, which is a riot because <laughs> Ken's pretty conservative. I mean, he's out there is pretty conservative. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, previous election official, but everybody also remember that he was like the audit guy. He, worked, he was like the spokesman for he the cyber ninjas. Yeah. for the audit team. So he's deeply embedded with this community. So the irony of ironies, and we're, we're beginning to see more of this. There was a, a Frank Antonori story in the Tucson Daily Star yesterday picking on uh, Wadsack. Yeah. There's more Antonori, of this, a former state lawmaker. Right. Also. There's more of this infighting going on within the Republican Party right now on that very narrow segment of the electorate that they continue to try to fight for. And it's these dogfights or, you know, it's not dogs and cats, not Republicans and Democrats, it's a dogfight that is going on inside of these closed Republican primaries that are creating these, quote unquote, opportunities for more right wing candidates to run against another right wing candidate. Well, so if Fincham ends up running in this primary, if you're Ken Bennett, would you be worried? I would have some sense of concern about that. Um, Ken has had a long history of service to that district and to the Prescott area. Um, Ken deeply has deep roots in that area. So I think Ken would have a pretty good narrative going on about district shopping, you know, the background of Mr. Fincham, who, as we all know, came from the Kalamazoo Police Department. And there's a there's there's a n- don't rehire thing in his file there. So why, you know, I would think if I'm Ken, I'm going to use that. I'm going to say, well, he can't get a job in Kalamazoo. He can't get a job in the state. He's shopping. You know, we should not rehire this guy. He's not eligible for rehire. So I'd have a lot of fun with that if I was Ken. I'm not sure fun is the, is the uh, word maybe he would use. But that, well, the funny, nev- nevertheless, I, I was yeah. texting with Stephen Richard the other day, and I said, hey, this is good news for you. And he goes, no, I really want to beat him. You know? <laughs> so, uh, Don, I want to ask you about a, a poll that came out this week from Morning, Morning Consult. They do this every so often where they look at the favorability, the popularity of America's governors. And Katie Hobbs uh, did not do so well. Um, we should point out that it was her favorability was she was still above water in terms of favorability versus unfavorability. But I also found that she was the second least popular governor in America. Do you make anything of that? Like, is that something she should she should be concerned about or care about? No, no absolutely not. Um, you know, I how popular the governor of Vermont is to Vermontians is like the last thing that any Arizonan cares about. Um, like you said, she was she's actually more popular than unpopular. She's not underwater. Um, and she has two things going on that, you know, if we can look back at Ducey, he also didn't have great popularity ratings, even though he was reelected for in most, the same poll in the same poll for most of his years. Um, and Governor Hobbs has a opposite party legislature that is has been giving her all kinds of grief for the entire seven months in office and something that no other governor has had to deal with, which is an opponent and a community around that opponent who continues to attack her as though she wasn't 
the legitimate winner of the governor's seat, which of course she was. Um, and so for those numbers to come out as they are, I think is actually good news. So I, I know it's a fun you know, headline for pundits and politicos to, to rank governors, but, but actually I think that's good news and just speaks to how focused she has actually been on the actual issues that are tough to tackle, like water, like affordable housing, um, like education, which maybe we can continue to make some incremental gains on. Yeah, Chuck, before we wrap up, what do you make of the numbers? Well, I think it speaks to, um, if at anything, I agree, mostly parlor talk, right? But, I mean, any new governor has a hard time finding their feet. And I think we've seen that in this first year of her administration, not even a year yet. Um, And so what we will begin to see, hopefully, as things settle down up there, you know, she's been largely defined by what she's been against, mm-hmm. right? By the Republican the vetoes. onslaught, all yeah. the vetoes. So you want to, if you're going to run, if you're going to actually mature a narrative, you want to be able to articulate what you're for. Um, and so I think with Chad now up there and some other people. Chad Campbell. Yeah, yeah Chad Campbell, Jennifer Laredo and others up there that have some seasoning around this issue. They're going to put together a more seasoned team of folks that actually will be able to advocate and use the power of the governor's office to be able to focus public attention on what you're for. Um, That's the biggest thing and the biggest opportunity. Like we were saying earlier, if they're going to do this real estate tax cut, then what you'd want to do is start off the next session is that's my starting point for backfilling all that public safety revenue. It's in my budget. It's right there. And I'm going to start by protecting public safety in municipalities across the, you know, across the state. Sure. All right. We'll have to leave there. Chuck Coughlin, Don Panish-Sacker, thanks you both for coming in. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mark. You've been listening to the Friday Newscap from KJZZ's The Show. It's an original podcast recapping the week's biggest stories with experts, commentators, and reporters. You can get the full show podcast at podcast.kjzz.org. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening.